This is Monday, the 15th of March, and I'm glad we're able to spend a little time together this morning as we begin the process of learning together, coming together as a congregation and believers in Christ to experience the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that maybe we never had before. Two, as they said in generations ago, to experience the higher Christian life, the deeper Christian life, as Watchman Nee said, the normal Christian life, or as Jesus said, the abundant life that only comes through him. I want to thank you for listening to the sermon on Sunday. And if you remember, we talked about how church is today versus how church was in the book of Acts. We talked about some of the needs that we have about digging deeper in God's Word to understand Him better and to experience this Spirit that lives within us, the Holy Spirit, in a way that will literally just transform our lives and turn us into the kind of people that are so kinetic for Christ that He will naturally draw people to Himself through us. This has been my prayer for years always desired before I pass on, and I'm 66 now, always desired to see a mighty move of God like we read about in the first and second great awakening or or even during the Jesus movement in the late 60s and early 70s, to see something like that before I'm called home. And so far, it hasn't happened. Church has just been church. There have been some good points, and there's been some not-so-good points. There's been some peaks and some valleys, kind of like in most of our spiritual lives, but that's not the way God designed it to be. So daily, as it says in the book of Acts, and we talked about yesterday at church, daily we're going to meet together, and we're going to pray, and we're going to study, and we're going to look at God's Word, and we're going to try as a congregation to experience him in a deeper way than we ever have before. And today is just day one. So before I go any further, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for speaking to us and encouraging us. Thank you for your son and all the things that you've done in our lives. But Lord, more than anything, now we want to experience you like we never had before. Lord, your word talks about this abundant life with you. The doxology at the end of Ephesians 3 says to you, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think by the power that exists in the church today. As I talked about Sunday in Jude, now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before you. God, we want to see that in our lives right now. So would you open up our hearts? Would you let this time together be a time of of just celebration for you? And Lord, would you draw us closer to you? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before we go any further, I need to go ahead and set some ground rules here. As you know, the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, lay out for us, as I've shared with you in painstaking detail, lay out for us church history in advance. We've got these 
seven letters sent to these seven churches, and if it was in any other order, it wouldn't fit. But every one of those letters and the encouraging words and the not-so-encouraging words that the Lord lays out for us paint for us a clear picture of church life as it has been and how it is now. We happen to be in the time of the or the age of the Laodicean church, which is the last church. It's the lukewarm church. It's the apathetic church. It's really a sad church age to be part of, but this is where God has placed us, so that the prevailing DNA in the church today is pretty much it being all about us. Let me go ahead and read the Laodicean church age letter that the Lord wrote, and understand this talks about an apostate church, and time-wise, this is about from 1900 all the way up into the tribulation period. And it says this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, and by the way, the word Laodicea means the rule of the people, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, pretty much just apathetic, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you say I am rich. I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing, including you, Christ. And do you not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. But as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. And then note this, behold, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The door here that he's talking about is not the door of our heart, which we kind of attach to the end of a gospel presentation where Jesus is knocking on the door of our heart and we open up our heart and he comes in and dines and has fellowship with us. The door here in this letter is the door of the church. Christ is on the outside of the church, knocking and wanting in. So what does this mean? It means primarily for me personally, and this is, this is just me talking. I distrust much of the literature that comes out of the Laodicean church age. I don't spend a lot of time reading contemporary authors. Now, I I do read commentaries from people like John MacArthur and stuff of that nature, but by and large, the hottest thing in the Christian market right now, book-wise, I'm not interested in reading because it comes from an age where the DNA is lukewarm and somewhat narcissistic. What I'm interested in is reading literature and testimonies from an age that which much which was much better than ours which is an age that I would really have loved to live in and that is the church age prior to this one that is the sixth letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Philadelphia 
the faithful church. And we find that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. This is the church that makes up the great missionary movements of the 17 and 1800s. The time frame for this is about 1750, the time of the First Great Awakening, up until about oh, 1900. We have Spurgeon, we have Finney, we've got Jonathan Edwards, we've got D.L. Moody and George Mueller, and many of the heroes of old are all included here. These were the missionaries that heard the gospel account and, and said, go into all the world, and they sold their possessions and went. These are the people that I highly respect. They're not hypersensitive. They're not hypercharismatic. They're, they're solid, conservative, orthodox believers that God used in a mighty way. He was absolutely thrilled with this church unlike the church age in which we live now. Let me read some of this letter to you. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. This, of course, is verse number 7 of Revelation chapter 3. These things says he who is holy and who is true, he who has the key of David, and he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. And here's what he says about that church. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Why? Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those, and here's this phrase used often in the Revelation, who dwell on the earth. I will redeem you, I will keep you from this worldwide tribulation that is designed to test those whose citizenship is not in heaven but on the earth. Verse 11, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. Now, why did I take this time to share this with you? It's to build this foundation that means that when we're looking for testimonies and when we're looking for theological understanding of what it means to encounter the Holy Spirit in a profound way that leads to the kind of spiritual fruit that changes lives and changes worlds, we don't need to look at modern church movements today, which are perverted by the church age in which we live, the narcissistic, all-about-me, lukewarm, Laodicean age that Jesus was so sick of, he vomited out of his mouth. But instead, we want to look back at this period of time where the Lord says, I love them, I will protect them, and I will keep them because they have persevered for me. Which brings us to the whole quest that we're on together. Is there more to life with the Holy Spirit than we're experiencing now? 
Is there a deeper understanding of God that maybe we're simply not seeing? Are, are we so immune to an intimacy with him that when we hear somebody saying that they've encountered Christ in a profound way, we're often suspect rather than trusting because our experience with those kind of people is questionable at best? But what if that person was Dwight L. Moody? Or what if that person was Charles Spurgeon? Or what if that person was Oswald Chambers? George Mueller are some of the great heroes of old. Would we view things differently then than we view them now? I know I would. Yesterday I read just a small portion of a testimony of Dwight L. Moody when he was talking about his experience with the Holy Spirit after his salvation, where he received the power of the Holy Spirit and how it changed his life. What I didn't share with you yesterday that I want to, again, build this foundation today is the rest of his story, when he actually put theology behind it to try to explain to the people he was preaching to in New York what happened to him. Let me go ahead and and read to you once again his testimony about receiving what he calls a baptism of the Holy Spirit. What he's sharing happened 12 years earlier when two ladies came to him and told him he needed power. At this time, D.L. Moody was pastoring the largest church in Chicago. He had one of the largest Sunday schools. They called them Sabbath schools back then in all of the United States. And he was successful in a profound way in almost everybody's eyes. But he had yet to experience the sanctifying, powerful encounter with God that God had in store for him. Let me let D.L. Moody tell you himself. I can myself go back almost 12 years and remember two holy women who came to my meetings. I shared this with you yesterday. It was delightful to see them there, for when I began to preach, I could tell by the expressions on their faces that they were praying for me. At the close of the Sabbath evening service, they would say to me, we have been praying for you. I said, well, why don't you pray for the people? And they answered, you need power. I need power, I said to myself. Why, I thought I had power. I had a large Sabbath school, the largest congregation in Chicago. Now, there were some conversions at that time, and I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, these two godly women kept praying for me, and their earnest talk about the anointing for special service set me to thinking. I asked them to come to talk with me, and we got down on our knees. They poured out their hearts that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Ghost, or as he later called it, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there came a great hunger in my soul. This week, what I'm praying is that you and I will experience this great hunger in our soul like Dwight L. Moody did, like Spurgeon did, like Finney did, like almost all of our heroes of old did. But let me continue. I knew not what it was. I began to cry as never before. The hunger increased. I really felt that I I did not want to live any longer if I could not have this power for service. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. 
And then, of course, the Great Chicago Fire happened. 1871, where one-third of the city burnt to the ground, including Moody's church and everything that he had built. And so Moody, of course, when he recovered from that, had to go east into New York and begin soliciting funds in order to rebuild the work in Chicago. Here's what he says. My heart was not in the work of begging. I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he didn't speak for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. By the way, that's exactly the same phrase that Finney used to describe his experience almost a hundred years earlier. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be as a small dust in the balance. Now, that I shared with you yesterday at church. What I didn't share with you is Moody's explanation of what happen. He experienced something that radically changed his life, and his preaching began to take on more of a picture of him describing this encounter with the Holy Spirit. And as he began to share that more, he began to explain to them theologically and biblically what happened. This is Moody talking in New York as he's preaching and explaining the theology the doctrine, the Bible behind that event in his life. We'll close with this. Now, I want this thing clearly understood, Moody said. We firmly believe that if any man has been cleansed by the blood, redeemed by the blood, and has been sealed by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost dwells in him. And all of us would say, amen. The Holy Spirit is our deposit, our guarantee, our pledge of our eternal life. Ephesians tells us that. Moody goes on. And the thought I want to call your attention to is this, that God has got a good many children who have just barely got life, but not power for service. You might say safely, I think, without exaggeration, that 19 out of every 20 professed Christians are of no earthly account so as far as building up Christ's kingdom. They're apathetic. But on the contrary, they are standing right in the way, and the reason is because they have got life and have settled down and have not sought for power. The Holy Ghost coming upon them with power is distinct and separate from conversion. And Moody says, and the Scripture teaches that. Now, as I'm reading this, if the terminology seems a little broken, this is because this is D.L. Moody's words, and this is how he spoke, and this is how the Lord used him. But let me share with you the Bible behind what D.L. Moody just said. Again, from his words. Let us look and see what God says. 
And if you will look at the third chapter of Luke, you will see that in those 30 years that Christ had been in Nazareth, he had been a son, but now the Holy Spirit comes upon him for service, and he goes back to Nazareth and finds a place where it is written, quote, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, to recover sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. And for three years, we find him preaching the kingdom of God, casting out devils, raising the dead, while for 30 years prior to that, when he was in Nazareth, we hear nothing of him. He was a son all the while, but now he is anointed for service. And if the Son of God has got to be anointed, do not his disciples need it? And shall we not seek it? And shall we barely rest with conversion? He goes on. In the seventh chapter of John, verses 38 and 39, Jesus says this, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, which they had believed on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Moody says, Now, do you tell me that Peter and John and James and the rest of those men had not been converted at that time? Had they not been three years with the Son of God and had not been born of the Spirit? Had not Nicodemus been born of the Spirit and had not men been converted before them? Yes, but they were saints without power and must tarry in Jerusalem until endued with power from on high. I believe we should accomplish more in one week than we should in years if we only had this fresh baptism. Moody continues, It seems to me we've got about three classes of Christians. The first class, in the third chapter of John, are those who got Calvary and got their life. They believe on the Son and were saved, and they were satisfied. They did not seek anything higher. These are those people, Moody would say, that got saved, and pretty much that's it. Then in the fourth chapter of John, we come to a second class or a better class of Christians. There it was a well of living water bubbling up. There are a few of these, but they are not a hundredth part of the first class. But the best class is in the seventh chapter of John, where it says, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's the kind of Christian we ought to be. And then Moody closes by answering the question most people have at this time. A great many think that because they have been filled once, they are going to be full for all time thereafter. But all my friends, we are leaky vessels, and we have to be kept right under the fountain all the time in order to be kept full. If we are going to be used by God, we have to be very humble. A man that lives close to God will be the humblest of all men. I heard a man say that God always chooses the vessel that is close at hand. Let us keep near to him. I just share this with you this morning to let you realize that there is more to this Christian life that maybe you and I have experienced. Moody just told you what he's experienced. Later on this week, we'll listen to Oswald Chambers. We'll listen to 
Charles Finney will listen to the John and Charles Wesley and some of the others that will tell you that there's more to this life in Christ than maybe we've experienced. And if that's so, before we can be changed and renewed and be endued with power from on high, to to be able to live out our birthright in this land that God has placed us, we have to, first of all, realize that maybe his kingdom is bigger than we think, and maybe he's placed in us a desire for more. And if we have that desire and don't rest until it's satisfied, there's no limit to what God can do with us. Let me just leave you with that this morning. I hope you have a great day in the Lord, and I'm looking forward to talking with you again tomorrow. Until then.